Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 21. Do you want to learn the how and when of implementing K means clustering in Python? Would you like to practice your pandas skills with a real world project? This week on the show, David Amos is back with another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. David talks about a real Python article about how to perform K means clustering in Python. We also talk about a new project based article on the site about how to create a grade book using pandas in which you'll practice the skills of importing, merging, and calculating across groups of data. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including JPEG image decoding, object-oriented development with interfaces and mixins, sparking joy with Python, five package picks from real Python authors, and more. So let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, David. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, great to be back. I wanted to start off this week and talk about uh, an article that is Diving into kind of a topic I've been interested in for a while, which is JPEG and JPEG compression. It's by Yasub Khalid. It's on his blog called Understanding and Decoding a JPEG Image Using Python. And I'm a photographer. You know, I, I've taken professional photos for, you know, a few different eras of my life. Did some stuff for some music magazines, um, this magazine, Mix Magazine. I don't even know if they're still around, but um, yeah. I did some photography for them. And then used to do like other kinds of things on the side. So I was always kind of intrigued by it and, and always kind of wondered how the compression worked. And this really dives deep into it and then gives you tools in Python to not only, you know, decode a, a JPEG compressed image and kind of see what's going on in there, but it goes deep into the whole process of what, what's happening when something's being encoded and the whole kind of lossiness of JPEGs, which I thought was really neat. It you know kind of goes into this whole idea of what gets lost. Um, one of the first things that's really I think interesting is that the JPEG color space, and I didn't know this right away, which is in YCRCB, mm. which is um, the Y being for luminance, which is kind of like the level of brightness or kind of like the overall grayscale of everything. And then there's a CR and a CB. CR being the chrominance red and the chrominance blue, so the kind of the color levels of red and blue. And so that already is kind of changing the overall look of the image from RGB into this other space. And that's where they can kind of get into this whole idea of like, okay, what can a human tell, you know, (laughs) as far as differences. And so there's a lot of information that can kind of get uh, sort of simplified there, if you will, to maybe allow for reducing this file size. And then it kind of breaks everything into these eight by eight pixel sort of chunks and then they apply this thing called DCT, which I was not familiar with at all, which is called discrete cosine transform. In that process, it looks at, of that eight by eight, what is the overall balance of all those YCRCB images? And there's an overall initial upper left corner of this process that is saying basically one or a zero, kind of like an overall black or white, they call it DC. And then all the other ones are kind of alternating, very cosine-shaped waves of, okay, where the pixels kind of overlap. And then each one of these, as it goes along, this 8 by 8 thing is determining, you know, how complex of a combination of all these cosine shapes make up this pattern inside the 8 by 8 And it's really fascinating to me, like, you know, how they could do that and how it kind of translates. And there's a really good YouTube video that's linked in there that kind of shows you how that works. And then after that's done, it kind of goes through like this zigzag pattern of determining from that upper left corner of the overall like, you know, dark light to to these other values. It goes through and basically creates a a pattern across the 64 squares of like, okay, well, how much of this information is going to be used? And then from there, it can be quantized. And there's like a 
quantization tables that are saved in there for sort of rounding down things because the levels are going to start to approach like zero near the end of that. And so one of the things you can do with that to reduce some of the data is this, these types of compression. And there's like three of them that can happen, which is one called run length, where let's say, you know, the first 10, 12 squares you look at have actually pretty high values in it. But by the end of it, once it gets quantized down, it's, you know, basically all zeros. And so that there might be like 50 zeros then. So that's very easy to compress. You say, okay, repeat zero 50 times or something like that, which is this idea of like run length compression. Yeah. And then there can be like another form, which is called delta encoding, where it's just basically changes. And then, then it gets into this other idea of something called Huffman encoding, which is they include another link to another video that kind of explains that. But this is like in the 50s, David Huffman figured out a way to you know compress language down using these binary trees and doing kind of a similar idea with the colors here of like, these are the only values that are being used. And so anyway, all that information actually gets stored into the compressed file then with tables of that information. Like, okay, what's the Huffman tree look like to re-encode or decode this? And the same thing with, you know, how the thing was quantized. And that's, I think, why JPEG images can fail pretty spectacularly is if one of those pieces of information is wrong or one or two bits of that type of information, you start to really have disastrous results in in decoding it but the python part of it goes into this whole idea of like going through the reverse of that and all the data is in the file and goes through showing you you know the zigzag pattern of reassembling it reading from the Huffman tables reading from the quantization tables and i don't know it's just a really neat exercise and if you're interested in images and then images in python i think it's a really kind of a cool way to dive in and learn a little bit more about not only jpegs but you know, image encoding and, and how that might be translated through a, a Python library. And so got a whole GitHub repository with the code and links to prior work by other people that have been kind of playing around in this field. Yeah. And this actually ties into an article we talked about several weeks ago now um, that was called How to Trick a Neural Network. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. Where we had a, there was like a, a neural network that would classify images and it there was a way to trick it into thinking that an image of a corgi was actually an image of a, of a goldfish. Yeah, exactly. And the way that they defend against that was by using JPEG compression, uh, actually. Oh, okay. To remove some of the like adversarial information, the, the noise that caused it to, to trick the neural network. So if you saw that, or if you heard us talk about that article and want to get more background on JPEGs and compression and everything, then I think this is a good good follow-up to that one yeah it's a fun way to you know dive into all those kind of topics together and yeah totally i forgot that that was the way that they were helping to uh defeat that yeah <laughs> that stuff so it makes sense because it, it you know there's a lot of information that gets thrown out and uh, a lot of the information could be in that you know in these higher levels of light and color that again the is has a hard time seeing the differences in so right yeah but a computer would <laughs> so right and could potentially fool it into not really knowing what that image is, right? It's uh, right, and you can encode a lot in there. So, yeah. All right. So, what you got first? Well, the first one that I've got is a, an article from Real Python by a, an author that we just. This is his first article written for Real Python, and and I think he'll be doing a lot more for us. His name is Kevin Arvai, or Arve. I'm not sure how he, how he pronounces that. The article is called "K-Means Clustering in Python: A Practical Guide." And this is for the data science folks. It's about clustering algorithms for classification. And in particular, this article is about the k-means clustering algorithm. It talks about uh, what k-means clustering is, when you would use k-means clustering to analyze your data, how you can implement it uh, using the scikit-learn package in Python, and then also some tips and tricks to help you optimize the, the algorithm and, and select like a meaningful number of, of these clusters in it. So yeah, just a great overview of that algorithm and, and how you can use it. A couple of things I like about the article is he kind of puts this k-means clustering idea into context and compares it, compares and contrasts it to a couple of different types of clustering algorithms. So he talks about partitional clustering and hierarchical clustering and density-based clustering and, and how all these kind of 
how the k-means sort of fits into into all these different types of clustering algorithms. So basically, the the idea behind k-means really is that you've got a bunch of data points and you're trying to assign some labels to the different points in the data set to sort of categorize them somewhat, right? Right, exactly. Some categorizing them as as some you know something, and and so. It could be anything, right? I mean, maybe your points represent, I don't know, some, some kind of label it as some sort of animal or something. Or it could be maybe a type of cancer. Maybe it's like uh, you've got a bunch of uh, data points from like a, like a cell biopsy or something, and you're trying to label certain data points as uh, like cancerous cells or non-cancers, or maybe even identify the type of cancer. There's all sorts of applications, but uh, the cancer one comes up in, in the article, which is why I'm, I'm talking about that. Okay. But sort of the idea is you've got these groups of data points that you can plot out and you can start to kind of group them together and calculate what would be considered like the centroid of like a of a group and you can iterate on this process to get a tighter like a hopefully a better fit of like here's all the points that are kind of close to this centroid and all the points that are close to this centroid and all the points and that would help you then label the different data points with whatever you're you're trying to label them as. So he walks you through setting up an entire uh, scikit-learn pipeline to like an end-to-end pipeline that trains a model on a data set, tests it and everything, and then gives you the final model that you can use to to run the k-means algorithm. So yeah, it's, it's a really in-depth, lots of great examples. In fact, he's even got a great example of where k-means can go wrong and where it like isn't the right like isn't the right tool for that particular data set. So, so there's just a lot of great information here to, to help you understand what that algorithm is, how you use it, how to apply it, and how to, uh, to build it in Python. I played around with this in uh, scikit-learn and a little bit of k-mean stuff. And so I you know, learned about the elbow and <laughs> trying to figure out like what's an actual good number of right. you know, groups to divide things in because it becomes less sort of meaningful to going beyond or above a certain amount. It was the information I was playing around with was uh, shopping information. Okay. And so it was kind of more like a retail environment and trying to figure out like, you know, sort of retargeting marketing stuff. And it was, it was very useful and it was a useful tool for that. And you could really see, you know, again, visually kind of what's happening with it using Matplotlib or something like that to start to kind of map out some of these ideas of like, okay, well, where, where are these, all these things kind of appearing? Sounds like a, a cool project. I'm excited to have more data science stuff happening on the site. Yeah. My next one is uh, actually a real Python one myself. It's a pandas project. So it's a very project-based article with lots of data in it ready for you to kind of play around with. It's by Brian Weber and it's called Make a Grade Book with Python and Pandas. And in it, you get kind of a quick demo of like what you're going to be building. But the overall idea is if you are interested, you know, in how to aggregate data, merge data, combine data, and use pandas for this whole process takes you through that whole idea. In this case, the example is truly doing actual grades. You you kind of initially explore the data and then you need to go through the process of using panda to load in the information and involves like a roster and then unique IDs to connect to different homework files, exam files, and then quiz files. And then you start merging and you start merging based on different indexes, filling in NAN, not a number values, the sort of NumPy stuff there. And then eventually getting into calculating grades and creating formulas to do, to do that stuff. And it's pretty slick. I, I went through the whole thing, kind of playing around with it. And I decided to use a Jupyter notebook in this case, mm-hmm. just to kind of be able to keep looking at some of the data as I work through it. And you know, I might suggest that as a way of kind of playing with it yourself as you kind of start to continue to build this project up and then, you know, maybe eventually turn into standalone scripts from there. But that was a nice way to kind of see some of the stuff as you're working on it. Yeah. Get into plotting at the very end, summary statistics, and you do little additional data science stuff right in there, kind of doing a little bit of uh, calculations and figuring out means and, and uh, kind of grade overall grade curves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He compares it to like a, it shows the histogram of of the grades for the the distribution of grades in the class and compares it to the normal distribution, which I think a lot of a lot of teachers are probably familiar with this process to kind of see like 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of goes into a little bit of like, you know, different ways to divide things up into separate groups. If you want ways to assign something categorically, like a letter grade. And if you wanted to weight things one way or another, and it's a neat project. So if, I mean, I don't think you necessarily have to be a teacher to, to appreciate kind of the things that are happening in it. I think it's a good project that you could modify into. Yeah, for sure. Lots of other things where you're kind of building up information. It just gives you some nice methodologies for doing all of it as a project. Yeah, it's a good application of of pandas to like a real world problem, right? And and I think um, you know Brian is actually a teacher. I think this is based on the system that he actually uses in uh, <laughs> cool. in the real world to sort of automate all this uh, work that he has to do at the end of of each semester. Yeah, it is. It's really cool. Some some real earned experience there. <laughs> yeah, totally. While you were reading this, did you sort of notice any differences between this article and other? articles on real python i feel like it has a little more of a step-by-step sort of flair to it which i felt was a little different yeah and that's why i felt like it worked really great for the jupyter notebook thing where i could take the the chunks of code and paste them in and just sort of you know keep building on on what i had and so in this case i was able just to kind of almost just like it felt a little different i, I kind of liked it yeah so this was um kind of a beta version of uh of a new style that we're we're working on of tutorial which are these project-based tutorials that are meant to be more like you said like just a step-by-step process to walk you through you know building a project from start start to finish as opposed to an article that's more focused on sort of teaching you the concepts yeah and that kind of thing so yeah that's uh you hit it hit the nail right on the head with the the step-by-step there and I like to think of these sort of as uh, almost like Lego instructions. Okay. Right. Where it's like, instead of showing you like why the pieces fit together the way they do or why certain design decisions were made, it's just, well, you know, first you do this and then, and then you do this and then you do this and eventually you get this, uh, this whole project uh, out of it. So they're meant to be kind of supplemental to the other kinds of articles that we have that are more teaching focused right. and this would be something like if you've read and i think even at the beginning of the beginning of the article he's got this background reading section where he lists what i guess five different different articles that would be like good yeah prerequisites to reading reading this and then okay now you understand how to use pandas how to do some basic operations with data frames and things like that now let's apply it to a, a real world project yeah it's slick yeah so we'll be uh we'll be having more of those uh come out so Cool. Yeah, it'd be good to get some feedback on it. Yeah, exactly. For listeners, if 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 you like this, or if you have feedback for us on this uh, style of, of article, we're all, all ears. <laughs> yeah, I want to know. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. The course fits in with some additional techniques for working with the Pandas project. It's titled Reading and Writing CSV Files. The course is based on a RealPython article by previous guest John Fincher. and. In the course, instructor Joe Tatasco takes you through what makes up a CSV file, reading and writing files using Python's CSV module, advanced CSV reader parameters, and how to read and write CSVs using Pandas. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to wrangle CSV files using Python, whether it's for big or small data projects. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections, and you get code examples for the techniques shown check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. So what you got next? Well, the next one I've got is, well, make sure I get the name right here, Redowan Nafi. I think he goes just by Red okay. as, a, as a shorthand here, but uh, we featured lots of his articles on PyCoders. This is uh, one of one of his newer ones is from the beginning of, of July, but it's called Interfaces, Mixins, and Building Powerful Custom Data Structures in Python. So this is all about the idea of like an interface, an abstract base class. So it's, you know, sort of some higher level uh, OOP concepts. Yeah, all that whole object-oriented level stuff, yeah. Yeah, which is it's one of those things that there's a lot of people that sort of shy away from this kind of stuff or say like, you know, don't, jump into it head first or but there's also a, a lot of reasons that you would use these kinds of tools uh, especially on you know larger projects and depending on maybe if it's a 
a library that you're trying to provide tools for other developers to use to, to create their own project. So it's good stuff to be aware of, especially if you're kind of already a fan of the OOP or if you just want to know how like the frameworks and stuff that you use. So the frameworks are big projects where you see these kinds of patterns yeah. being used like a Django or the Django REST framework and, and these kinds of things. So he talks about the, the focus is interfaces and mix-ins. And uh, so he talks about, you know, interfaces are sort of like blueprints for classes, which I think a lot of people maybe hear classes being described as blueprints for, for objects. <laughs> and so you've got, what's a blueprint of a blueprint, right? That's a, uh, Seems kind of strange. <laughs> yeah. You know, basically, you know, an interface defines certain kinds of methods that should be on a class without actually implementing those classes. So it's like a parent class that you would then use to create child classes that inherit from it. They would then use to create like different kinds of objects, right? Based on a similar kind of parent class. So an example might be maybe you have like an automobile class and then that's like sort of your interface provides like the different kinds of methods you should have on an automobile, like maybe there's a drive method or a you know refill gas tank method, or, you know these kinds of things that all auto automobiles are gonna are gonna have. Right. And then from there you might create like a car child class or a truck child class or a, a I don't know, eighteen wheeler child class or something like that to create different kinds of kinds of objects. So he talks about that there's two different kinds of interfaces, informal and formal. The main difference being that an informal interface doesn't like enforce like that the methods actually have to exist on the on the child class, whereas a formal one does. So for example, in that, that automobile thing, you might just have like, you know, define your class automobile and say, okay, it needs to have a drive method that an argument or a parameter called distance or direction or something uh, maybe so two parameters like distance and direction sure and then it doesn't actually do anything it would just that would raise like a not implemented error or return not implemented or, or something along these lines and then you would inherit from that automobile and then you would actually implement that that drive method but if you were to like create an instance of this automobile class you would be able to do that there, there'd be nothing stopping you from just creating an automobile instance and then if you try to call the drive method, you would, you would get this not implemented error when you tried to, to do that. So you wouldn't be told off the bat, like when you tried to create the automobile instance, that, hey, you need to implement this, this drive method. Otherwise, you can't, you can't actually use this thing. So that's an informal interface. A formal interface would actually enforce this. So if you tried to create the automobile instance, as soon as you tried to create it, you would get an error saying, you can't create this, this object, you have to, you have to implement these implement this drive method before you can do so. And so the way that you do that is you would inherit from this capital A capital B capital C ABC class, which is from the lowercase ABC module in the standard library. The ABC stands for abstract base class. And in that same module, there's an abstract method decorator that you use on all of the different methods in the interface that says, that, okay, this is an abstract method, meaning it doesn't actually implement anything. It's just like providing the name and signature of, of this method. But when you have all that in place, then if you were to try to like actually instantiate the class uh, or instantiate an object from the class, then you would get an, an error saying that you need to implement these abstract methods before you can, can do anything with it. Kind of two different different approaches there. I could think of that like extrapolating on your idea there. If you had this overall class automobile and you have an abstract based class of, or you have this method, part of that, that's simply like refuel, but it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, specify, like you said, what, what that actually is implying. When you go to actually create the actual class, if one of them is like an electric car, the refuel could be, you know, right via a, like a battery method whereas another one might be actually using gasoline if it's like a gas-based car right okay so that y you know just you're not determining it early on up there it's just a it's something that has to be implemented though right it's it's defining like the like the api right for what an automobile yeah. should have like they should all have a refuel method they should all have a drive method they should all have right what the actual implementation of those is depends on what kind of automobile it is they should all have that that interface so 
you can kind of boil it down like the difference between interfaces and these things called abstract base classes. So an abstract base class is like a more general version of an interface. So an abstract base class can have concrete methods, which are like they actually are implemented and do something. It can also have like internal state. So you can it can have attributes, you know, keep track of the state of, of something. An interface is an like a type of abstract base class that doesn't have any internal state and has no concrete methods. All of its methods are abstract methods, which are okay. um, don't have any implementation and would generally raise a not implemented error if you tried to actually call that that method that wasn't implemented. And then he gets into talking about mixins, which are another type of abstract base class that are classes that are not intended to be instantiated. They can have both abstract and concrete methods. So they're basically a special kind of abstract base class that doesn't have any internal state. Yeah. So it's a subtle, subtle difference. But mixins are really meant to like, you can almost think of them as like partial classes as kind of a, it's a really yeah. loose way of thinking about it. My favorite way that I saw this being used was when I got into visualizations mm-hmm. and a variety of them, this is, you know, how they were described in the APIs were like, okay, this particular visualization is for doing dots as opposed to bars or something like that. So those dots could have this whole set of mix-ins that, okay, should is this going to implement having a name on that object, the size of the object, the color of the object, and so forth? And so it allowed for this flexibility in this whole library of different types of charting and graph type of abilities that they could just add the mix in. So it's like, okay, this one's going to have, it's going to have two axes and those axes need to have labels and, and, you know, all these kinds of things. And so you could kind of see the structural thing where you're sort of, I don't know, plugging in the additional components to this type of chart. It's like this chart should have this set of features because it's, you know, designed for lines and it's two-dimensional versus like ones that would be three-dimensional would have different ones. And so it allowed this sort of flexibility where you're not going to instantiate just a, you know, an object that is just the mix-in, which would just be like an axis, you know, sitting there by itself. (laughs) It needs to be part of this class that is the overall chart, you know, class or whatever. I don't know if I'm explaining that well, but um, yeah, that's how I've seen it. Exactly. I mean, I think of it too, like another classic example, I think is like in the Django framework where you have like a class-based view. So if you're familiar with Django, you might define a view in your web application using a class and that they have different mix-ins that would sort of bring in different kinds of functionality or, or things into, into that. And so they've got stuff like that, you know, that it should require authentication or it should right. require certain kinds of permissions or that it should be like a, a template response versus like a like a different like a JSON response or something like that. So there's a, there's all these different mixins that you can you can use. To, so you have like multiple inheritance going on. You have your view that's inheriting from these different parent classes, which are these mixins that all sort of bring in different kinds of functionality in there. Yeah. So it looks really interesting, right? So you're like defining that new class, and then you'll have like the base class that is supposed to be you know created on, then comma, and then all these additional one's sort of sitting after it, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it can get large too. Like sometimes if you need to have lots of different, right. different things. But anyways, this article by, by Red does a really good job of just sort of breaking down like what all these different things are and what the differences are. And he's also got a nice overview, differences between interfaces, abstract classes, and mix-ins. So to kind of keep track of like what the, the subtle differences are between, because they're all sort of, they're all very similar uh, in ways, but it's, and there's nothing like, really, it's just how these things are meant to be used. I mean, it was what it really boils down to. Like, yeah, it's really like, there's nothing that like really defines, like you say like, oh, this is a mix-in and there's some, I don't know, something that like makes it a mix-in in your, in your code. It's like, well, no, a mix-in is just how this thing is being, is being used and sort of like the the properties that it, that it has. But he goes through, like, he gives you a, a concrete example and then talks about how to use all these different ideas to create some like powerful custom data structures. And one of the things that's kind of neat is he goes into 
how you would create a, like a special kind of dictionary, a custom dictionary that interfaces with SQL Alchemy to actually store keys and values in a SQL Alchemy uh, compatible database so that you, you've you got like a dictionary basically that's actually persisting its data to a database somewhere. And all you're just using it like you would like a normal a normal dictionary. So it kind of goes, he calls it going ballistic with, with all this stuff into like this kind of crazy, crazy idea. <laughs> but, uh, but it really highlights like the power of all this stuff, how you can really create some like interesting kinds of data structures and everything that has lots of different kinds of functionality. So whether or not you would actually do this in practice, I guess would kind of be up to you or depend on, on your project. But, uh, but it does show you how, you know, the, the real power behind all this stuff. Yeah, this was always kind of cool about reading about these kinds of things and, you know, keeping your, your finger to the wind and like, what are all these things that are available to me as a problem solver, you know, like yeah. ways that you could try to accomplish stuff. Cause it's easy to paint yourself into a corner as, as a programmer <laughs> to not have a plan and, and just simply keep working in a direction. And then suddenly you're like, right. Oh no, <laughs> I need to rethink this whole thing. So this idea of like being able to mix stuff in or, or, you know, you know, think about the structures of stuff. We've talked about video games before on the podcast, but that's an area where I think of object oriented really need to think about like, what are these things going to be able to do and so forth. And so when people think of like adding changes to, to, to your code, like I guess working with a team, that's where it can get really kind of crazy like that too, <laughs> you know, or like suddenly well, you're just adding one feature. It's like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have to restructure everything to make that work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Also just a, a shout out to to Red to thanks for he in his references here on his article, he links to uh, implementing an interface in Python, which is a real Python article by William Murphy. Yeah. From back in February of, of this year. So and then he's also got some other great references. There's a uh, uh, actually, oh, here's a mix-ins for fun and profit, which is on uh, Dane Hillard's, who's another real Python uh, author. Yeah, I hope to have him as a guest soon. Yeah, and a link to, I guess, a video by uh, Raymond Hedinger about uh, called "Build Powerful New Data Structures with Python's Abstract-Based Classes." And Raymond's a fantastic teacher. I learned a lot yeah. from watching his YouTube videos. So, uh, yeah, lots of good references there in Red's article as well. Cool. What do you got next? My next one is, <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, I think the idea of it is uh, based around Marie Kondo and the idea of you know sparking joy. <laughs> it's yeah. by a guy named Maxwell Forbes <laughs> and it's called Sparking Joy with Python. Has a picture of her on there <laughs> at like a conference talking. <laughs> you ever watch that show? Uh, no, but I've... What's it called? Tidying up or something like that? Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the, the Marie Kondo method. Uh, I watched like two episodes of it. And I just couldn't handle the people. Um, <laughs> I think the topics are good, but that's my whole problem with like reality programming in general. It's just, um, like, especially when it can be couples and the couples, like maybe they don't really like each other. It just, <laughs> I, I don't need to, I don't need to get into that world <laughs> that close. No, well, I'm sure they found like the most extreme examples right, of like right. borders and things like that to, <sighs> you know, for dramatic effect. So, right. Right. So yeah. they can see a difference. Yeah. But, it, to me, it's just like, uh, I get, I guess anxious watching it <laughs> anyway. Um, I think the idea was that, so Maxwell, he started out in Python, does a lot of data science and natural language processing sort of research, mm -hmm. and then took a, a while and did like a side project creating a video game. And he created this game. And in that process, he was using TypeScript, which is something we've talked about a couple times in the podcast. I've talked with it with Armin and, and a few different people, but TypeScript's like JavaScript, but it, it adds um, static typing in, in a lot of ways to what you can do in JavaScript. And it's very popular. And he really became this big fan of it and really felt like these are some of the things that he felt was you know missing in Python. But also along with that, he really loved the whole cycle of creating a video game. You know, the idea of like you make a change and then you can just see that change on the screen and, you know, the interaction and stuff like that. And I, yeah, I understand that process too. That, that excites me. I think probably why I'm like into the whole creative arts and stuff like that, you know, of music and audio and all these other kinds of things. I, I really kind of dig that part of it. And his problem was that he kind of didn't feel very 
joyful, if you will, working in Python. And he tried to figure out like, well, why? And what are some of the things that he could apply to this? And so it's like a four-part series kind of diving into that. And I think a lot of it, it, it's kind of a mix of things. Part of it was, again, static typing. When you're doing stuff inside of Python, especially as you work for a long time on a project and end up with lots of different files, as you start to work with them, if you haven't documented things well, which is a whole thing in of itself of going through and, and you know, writing like long doc strings to explain what stuff's supposed to expect and what it's supposed to return and so forth. If you haven't done that and then you go back and look at, you know, say a definition of a function and you have no idea what those parameters are supposed to be and can be kind of frustrating to have to dive back and back and back and so forth into it. And so that's partly why somebody might get into, you know, static type checking or adding a little bit of that to Python by doing type annotations, which right. I did a whole video course on one of Gary Arna's articles about type checking and talking about MyPy and that project of sort of adding that stuff to it. Because in the end of the day, Python is a dynamic language. And so the types are not enforced at runtime. What this MyPy project will do is look through your code and try to confirm what all these things are. And you, you have these simple annotations in into when they can be actually not so simple. They can be a little more complex depending on you know things that we were just talking about, like advanced data classes and things like that. Mm-hmm. But generally you could say this is supposed to be an int and this is supposed to be a string and this is supposed to be a list with these types of you know other objects that are inside of it. And give you, yourself an idea of what it's supposed to be. And in some ways I feel like that can reduce a lot of all the writing that you would do, do inside of say a doc string and all the comments that you might need to add to it. And then you get this advantage of running something like this tool, MyPy to say, well, it was expecting a string here and you gave it this and it, you would actually start to see some of that. Right. And so, you know, it kind of goes through a little bit of that, like, you know, it avoids common mistakes. It can avoid often what he was running into, which was like typos and things like that. And he just had a whole bunch of little other additional things along with type checking that could necessarily maybe spark some joy (laughs) and get rid of some of the frustrations. And one of them was using an IDE, which um, I am a huge fan of, and I use a VS Code. And I don't know if I've ever asked you, what what do you use for an editor? I use VS Code. I do, okay. And I I played around with one that doesn't provide as much feedback. Uh, I played with like Sublime, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, more of a text editor kind of style thing. and and. I, I like the code suggestions. Um, I haven't tried PyLance yet, though that's something I think we'll, we'll probably look at coming on, on the show talking about. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that it can kind of help you and highlight, and then it's very modular. It can add sort of the Git functionality to what you have there, which I think is really nice. But then going beyond the IDE, structuring your code, having a tool, which we've talked, <laughs> we had Wukas on to talk about Black. Yeah. And the idea of like, okay, having a code formatter and not having to worry about like, you know, how stuff's formatted. It's going to be formatted this one way, which I, I think is a really powerful thing to sort of take off the table. I know that can be, we've talked about it for teams to not have that be part of the whole code review process, but also to have it for yourself and your yeah. own code review, you know, <laughs> and hopefully that can help you avoid common things that you might do there. But then it gets into debugging using a REPL, which I do a lot in my tutorials. I, I use this thing called bpython. And I think it's really useful to be able to kind of see your code running. Garana talked about using IPython. Yeah, I like IPython a lot. Yeah. yeah. And so those are great tools to kind of check to make sure stuff's running instead of always having to go all the way, you know, to the end of the project to finally see if stuff's working properly. And yeah. And then, you know, he talks about, you know, just overall structure, you know, structuring your code. Uh, importing things in order, you know, starting with like your standard library and then third party and then internal project kind of tools as you're importing, putting everything in functions, avoid defining things outside in the top level of, of your file that maybe you should put those things inside of main. Like if you're like doing some initial variables or something like that, you're setting up uh, and then just always adding, you know, at least minimal comments so that you can kind of find things. And that's why the type annotations might be able to, uh, speed up some of that too for yourself. 
And I agree with you know, most of these things. It's an interesting article because he kind of bounces around a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and you can kind of see it was like kind of like a a bit of a, a brain dump of like all these ideas of, you know, like ways that I think could help people feel about it. But I think it's <laughs> if you're if you're feeling frustrated in, in your coding and you're feeling frustrated in your in your tools and your setup, it's like, yeah, okay, like that might be stuff to think about. Of course you can fetishize that and <laughs> it could be like the whole thing like you know like it, my, i've i've made this perfect code editor and you know i got the the theme and all the stuff installed and so forth what have you created well i got my code editor all set up and uh, you know <laughs> you get to that whole point where you're spending more time you know collecting the tools than, than building anything oh uh, yeah i mean i think everyone kind of goes through that a little bit at at different intervals in their yeah journey right but but i think the idea is you know once you kind of settle on a workflow and sort of automate some of that stuff then you know it's really you you kind of it does add joy in a, in a way because yeah. it's like well okay <laughs> I've, I've thought it through i found something that works and now i uh, uh i can very quickly get started on a new project because i've got you know some scripts that i created that sort of automate like environment setup and everything and i've i've got my editor sort of fine-tuned to the way that I, I need it. And it becomes a lot easier just to get started on a project and to look at your code and, and, and everything. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I really liked the idea in this article or this series of articles, really. It's like four, uh, yeah, four articles four together. But by stepping away from Python for a little bit, he rediscovered sort of the joy of of programming yeah and then uh went back and and found ways to bring that back into his into python as well which uh which i just thought was kind of kind of neat and and i think you know as developers we shouldn't be scared of trying different technologies and uh oh yeah and stepping out of our comfort zone a little bit and we might find things that which I, i think for for this person it really kind of feels like the the whole idea of, of static types was was like a big thing for him right like he got into typescript and thought oh my gosh like this yeah <laughs> this really makes a huge difference for me these rules are helpful yeah and and it you know my and and typing are not that new in python i mean there's been big changes recently and and some of that stuff i mean if you go back to like you know python 3.5 or prior to that i think i forget exactly when the type annotations became a thing but there was a, a period where you could only do it with like comments yeah just hints kind of in there yeah These type yeah so there's been a lot of sort of development over the past a couple of years in in the way that static uh, the way that types work in python but not the way that types work the way the type annotations and type hinting and all that stuff works but i think i think part of that too is that as you look at other people's code and you want to implement that code in your project very often you can get lost as to, you know, what, what's happening, you know, what is this thing expecting and so forth. And so that, that again, when, when the project becomes more public and you're, you're sharing it out there, that's where the annotations and all those things really are very important. He talks about that briefly too. Like, you know, like (laughs) just being able to like, you know, how am I supposed to interface with this thing? You know, in, in something like TypeScript, it's it's right very blatant, you know, and you know right away what's happening. So. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, cool. So what you got next? Uh, next one I've got is another real Python article uh, that just came out uh, this past week, actually, I believe, uh, the week before. All right. And July 22nd is when this was published. Uh, it's called Python Packages, Five Real Python Favorites. And this is another kind of new format for us. It's a roundtable article. We got together five authors and asked them what their favorite package is in the Python ecosystem that maybe replaces like something in the standard library yeah, to offer like better or, or different functionality. The five that we got here, we got uh, Christopher Trudeau, who has, I think, mainly done video courses for us, but has sort of yeah. been... He's done a couple... He did a, a Django article. Yes. So, yeah. He's been doing yeah. more and more written uh, content for us as well. So he's uh, kind of crossed over and is doing both of those formats for us. He talks about the PUDB visual debugger, which is a replacement for the PDB debugger that ships with, uh, with Python. It's inspired by GDB, which is like a visual debugger 
for uh, not for not for Python. Uh, works with like C, C plus plus, Pascal, Fortran. <laughs> oh my <laughs> Those gosh. kinds of languages. Yeah. It's <laughs> a GNU debugger. Yeah, it's the yeah GNU uh, debugger. But PUDB is a textual user interface. It opens up. It, it kind of like like something like Vim, right? Like as like an editor, but it's got some colors and everything. If your terminal supports all of that, it's got you know colors and everything, and you can see your code and you can see where breakpoints are set and you can see like what the vari- variables are that are set right now and you can uh, look into the stack and then it's you all still have access to your command line so you can run different uh, commands and stuff but it's a a much more full-featured debugger than just pdb which is like super minimal yeah it all takes place in in the terminal there's no you don't actually need a graphical user uh there's no graphical user interface so this will run like if you're just sshing into a system if you have access to the internet and can get pudb installed on it, then uh, you can use this there, which is which is a huge huge benefit. So that's a cool project. We've got uh, Martin Bruce with the request yep. module. Most people probably know what request is, but he sort of mentioned some of the things that he he likes about it, as opposed to using something like urllib in the standard library. So he likes that request is readable. He likes that uh, request is powerful, which. I think you could argue that URL lib is also powerful, but URL lib is a lot more like low level, right? Whereas request is a little bit more high level. It's sort of lots of things go on in the background. It has a really nice, I think it's widely known for having a nice API in that. So it's, um, that's Martin's pick there, requests. Ger Aina, uh, re- his pick is the parse module, which is for, it's sort of a replacement of regular expressions. Although it's, yeah. I shouldn't say it's a replacement because I think it's being driven by regular expressions in the background, but it gives you a whole new way of of working and parsing, working with and parsing text that almost feels magical, honestly, when you when you look at it and and That's use cool. it for the first time. It's really powerful and really incredible. So to just to give you an example, and the example that Garana gives is he takes the text of PEP four ninety eight, imports that in his or has that in as a string. And uses this search function from the parse library that you pass it like a a string that almost looks like an f like f string syntax, but without without the f the layout uh, or like a, or like a format string, yeah, right. Where you, yeah, like we talked about yeah, last time, where yeah. you've got the the yeah. curly braces and the curly braces represent like what you're looking for, like something would go here instead of having to do this like complicated regular expression pattern. The string he's got is like author colon space and then curly braces and then new line character backslash n. So you pass that into the first argument for the search function. And then the second argument is the string that you want to search for this, this pattern in. And the result, it finds the name of the, it, it finds whatever would like, if it, if it finds a match for that, it returns like whatever would go inside of that those curly braces that in the inside of the match. So it's just a like way more natural way of, of doing, doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it really feels, feels magical. And he talks about some other features about how you can use format specifiers in these things. I could see this being really helpful for, you know, a topic we've hit a couple times, which is web scraping. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 The next author is Brian Weber, who we talked about his pandas article earlier on on this episode, but he mentions the date util package, which is a much more powerful sort of replacement for just like the date time package in the the standard library, particularly when you need to work with things like time zones. Date util has a lot of built-in functionality for for that kind of stuff. Also really nice uh, tools for parsing date and time strings that again, also feel sort of magical. For example, the parse function, well, dateutil has a parser module in the package and in the parser module, there's a parse function. He gives the example of just passing it the string that says Monday comma May 4th, like 4th at 8am. Yeah. Uh, so this is all written out and the return that function returns a date time object, the right month, the right day, the right time 
And because there was no year given in the string, it finds the closest match, which would be at the time this article was written, 2020. So it can just infer the date, or infer the, the year for you. Like, oh, they didn't specify it, so probably they meant the most recent recent one there, which is, which is pretty amazing. This parse method is just a really neat way to, to parse those strings and get the, the daytime without having to use the, like the format specifiers and, and remember the little string date formatting language that no one can ever remember off the top of their heads. The next one is Dane Hillard, who we also mentioned previously, and his pick is the typer package for creating command line interfaces off of going back to types, using type annotations to sort of automatically (laughs) generate help strings and automatically validate input and everything. So this is sort of a a replacement for the arg parse module, which is a great built-in module for creating command line interfaces for a program, but, but does require a lot of setup and everything. So typer can be used to sort of make all that a lot easier and leverage type hints. Okay do some stuff automatically for you as well so definitely a cool a cool package to check out wow it's like a ton of information like five little mini tutorials in one (laughs) kind of diving you know not super deep but you know enough that you could like kind of get a little bit of information then there's like all the links that kind of expand on top of there for further reading which is nice yeah you get a you get a nice little taste of each each package but uh but it's not yeah, I would say it's not any longer than a typical real Python article. So yeah, it's the, nothing goes into a whole lot of whole lot of depth. But yeah, it was a really cool format. It was fun. I, I I did the technical review for this one, and it was fun kind of getting to work with five authors at the same time. So just <laughs> uh, also, do you put fun in quotes at that point? Um, <laughs> well, I I do have to say, you know, the the person who's not been mentioned here is Alex Ronquillo which sort of managed this whole thing. So he's, oh, okay. he was, he's like the project manager, like the project manager for this article. Yeah. He, and then he wrote like the introduction and I think conclusion for all of this and uh, managed all the authors and everything. So uh, I just would sort of provide my feedback and then Alex sort of handled making sure that the author responded to the feedback and, and everything. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. So kind of moving into the next, next segment here, talk about projects again. I have a project that kind of goes into the security realm that we've been kind of dancing around a little bit here and there with our, our last couple episodes. The project is uh, ZXCVBN. That's all together, dash Python. So ZXCVBN Python. And it's uh, by Daniel Wolf. And it's basically based upon the code of Dropbox or Dropbox's realistic password strength estimator. And I think it's really handy to be able to you know, get an idea of like what makes a good password. I'm sure people have in the past said, Oh, just, you know, make sure that you're, you know, using a certain length or certain characters and so forth. This actually goes into and, and shows you in code when you're running this thing, if you give it a password and apply this to it, it'll tell you like how long it would take depending on the type of, uh, hashing it would take to crack a particular password it has an actual like uh crack time display and so i i did a couple of really simple ones where i just like used you know like first name last name and then like one two three or something like that and it said would take less than a minute or actually less than a second <laughs> in the fastest hashing to to be able to crack that one wow and then you know depending on if it had to do it over you know like an online with throttling or not throttling it would take like three hours and then you know changing from that and then it tells you like okay you know it gives it a score of one to four as far as like the quality of it and then um it says like how it would have tried to guess that and it'll say okay well that's a a, actually a dictionary word that's in the dictionary or it might even say well that's a male's name so it came from the you know that dictionary it will know if you know it'll guess the variations of like oh there was an uppercase letter um, or there, you know, or it was in reverse. And so it knows to, even if you were thinking you're being clever about like spelling words backwards or something like that. And so it pretty quickly shows you the types of things that will make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And you know, the first is just not using dictionary words, you know, words that 
that uh, something can go through and just look for in, in again names and and common words and then you know if you use like the really bad ones of like using password or or sequences of characters like one two three or i've seen people type across the top layers of the qwerty keyboard or something like that and just shake your head yes, yeah. <laughs> it'll tell you like how many guesses for you know it'll actually it'll actually subdivide your sequences up too so if it's like okay well this one i had to do a brute force on but this area this pattern it was like oh that's an actual dictionary word and so it you know it's it's pretty slick and so i think it's a good way yeah just to kind of see what's happening with it it the project's on github so you can download the code and and run it from the command line and and check out you know what's involved in it one thing i added i was running in a REPL session and uh added uh imported pretty print because it out, outputs a big uh dictionary <laughs> it's way easier to look yeah. to have it printed out with that with pprint cool so make sure you import that too so what you got the one i've got is uh one i've i've been it's been on my radar for a long time and it's because i'm a, I'm a big fan of a youtuber called grant sanderson which goes by the youtube handle of three blue one brown okay and his his math videos are just they're they're really he's such a good teacher and he really does a great job of breaking down complicated subjects very simply and, and explaining things in very simple terms. And he's amassed quite the following on, on YouTube for that. You know, for example, if, if you are into data science and you struggle with learning something like uh, linear algebra, his videos on linear algebra are some of the best videos I've seen. And, and really even when I took linear algebra in college, and then again in in uh, well, I didn't really take a linear algebra class in graduate school, but when it came up in my abstract algebra, the, it was finally where some things clicked for me. I mean, it took years. Where if you just watch Grant's videos, you'll get it in like you know an hour. <laughs> Basically, the stuff that took me years to like to finally that's a good click. shortcut. <laughs> yeah, the way he describes some stuff, but. One of the hallmarks of his videos are these animations that he uses that are just beautiful. And it turns out that the way that he makes these animations is through a, a, a Python library that he created called Manim, or I believe it stands for Math Anim Animation, Math Animation okay. Anim. And this library is interesting. You use Python scripts to create these little animations, and uh, it's got a library that you import and create like a class that represents an animation or really you you import a class called scene and then you you subclass from that scene class to create different scenes in your in your animation it's got some other tools in there to to do stuff like uh fade outs and transformations and creating polygons and squares and circles and lines and all this kind of stuff so it's got everything you need and basically you just sort of map out you know almost like a like a thing of a script which is okay. So you script it out, but uh, yeah. So it's like writing a script for uh, like a play almost where it's like, this is going to happen. Then like, uh, you know, here's your actors with the different kinds of uh, shapes and everything. And then uh, the things that they do. And then it's got some functions to uh, play all that. And it actually outputs a video file. So you, you put all this together and then it's got a command line tool that you use to to run that script and generate a, a video file then that you can upload to YouTube or embed on a on a website or share with with people. Um, so it's just a really neat. I mean, if 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 you're into making mathematical type of of animations, yeah, it's a fantastic teaching tool. It's a little bit so the, the documentation is really lacking on this one. And uh, there is no like official documentation that I could find very quickly, but there's there's a community, like a Discord community for it that I think is pretty active. And there's also a tutorial that was written by a guy, I guess a fan of of Manum that kind of walks you through how to actually build some of this stuff. So it's sort of the missing documentation there for it it's not complete <laughs> okay you know if you really wanted to master it i think you'd have to just scroll through the the source code and, and kind of pull some stuff out but they are trying to to work on that and so if you're interested in contributing to open source software that might be an area if, if you want to help document some of this stuff but yeah just a really cool cool project 
One thing to note is that it has a lot of system requirements, things like uh, FFmpeg, uh, LaTeX. Yeah, I was looking at that. Yeah. yeah, and so there is a way to run this using Docker, which I would say is probably a, a good way to do it if you're familiar with Docker and using Docker, just to avoid... So they have a, a Docker image. Exactly, yeah. That is the stuff in it. Okay, cool. Um, so that you don't have to try to figure out how to get all these system dependencies <laughs> working on your system. Just uh, Yeah, they're very specific. So that, yeah, that's pretty important. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, super cool project. And like I said, it makes beautiful animations. And I think that's one of the keys to grant success on YouTube is not only is it a fantastic teacher, but the animations are just top notch. And so you can make your own animations using this uh, Manum library. Sweet. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show again and bringing all this stuff with you, all these articles to go over. Yeah, absolutely. Love coming on the show. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Yep. See ya. I want to thank David Amos for coming on the show this week and bringing along all those great articles. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.